This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. And this week, in keeping with what we've been up to these past few episodes, we are presenting personal stories about emergencies. That's right. Uh, something which we have all recently become experts in, I think. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. And Liz, I know you had a piece come out in The Atlantic today about how we can maybe use that expertise to be helpful. Well, yeah, trying to. Um, so what I what I did was I wrote an essay trying to take 15 years of experience and like however many thousand papers I've read and condense it into some practical, gentle advice about the idea that we are all science communicators now. COVID has conscripted us, right? Like we don't have the choice of opting out or ignoring this. Really, all we can do is try and make it better and avoid making it worse. Yeah. So how do we make it better? Well, I think, uh, well, our producer, Ray Maktoufi, had a great line on this. She's an expert in misinformation. And in our live show last week, she mentioned that starting from a place of kindness, um, is, is a good strategy. And and I agree, right? Like the stakes are so high right now. We are literally talking about life and death. And in many instances, data is pretty patchy or maybe we don't have the expertise to be able to interpret it ourselves. And so what we don't want to be doing is exacerbating arguments or like, for example, conflating, like there are political arguments to be had right now. And and I, personally, I think like, really critically important fights mm. to be having. But that's not the same thing as science communication. And I think being able to recognize that, especially if you're talking to your friends and family, if they're asking for your advice or your input or your reaction, that's an opportunity. And one of the things that you can do is sort of react from a place of curiosity, if not love, you know, like at least curiosity. And if nothing else, think of it as a way to gather more data about what your audience needs so that you can be more effective in helping them make sense of this emergency. And that's great because I know a lot of people are looking for ways to be helpful or useful right now. I think it's one of the few things that gives us any sorts of sense of comfort is that we're each doing the best that we can, whether that's hand washing and social isolation or making sure that we are not spreading virulent misinformation. Yeah. <laughs> Don't spread either. Right. That's, right. That's the goal. Well, we have two stories for you today about emergencies, but they are not about this particular emergency. So you can escape mm -hmm. for a little while until into these other emergencies. <laughs> Liz, do you want to introduce our first story? I do. Our first story today is from Brooke Dolchak. It was recorded in November 2019 at the Lookout Room. The theme of that night was hurdles, and it was made possible thanks to the sponsorship of the Micron School of Material Science and Engineering at Boise State University.
I'm a first-generation, non-traditional college student. What that means for me is that my parents didn't go to college. I had a brother and a sister ahead of me that attempted college and couldn't finish because they didn't have the support they needed, including a dad who didn't file taxes so my brother couldn't even get support through financial aid. We were, by socioeconomic standards, poor. We all worked very hard for the things many other people take for granted. When I graduated high school, I had to grow up very quickly. We were expected to move out of the house and figure it out. I looked around at my peers, and they had the support from their parents they needed when emergencies came, but I didn't have that luxury. So I had to figure it out. I always wanted to go to school. I wanted to be a doctor or a physician assistant because I was such a great caretaker, and I love blood and guts. <laughs> but I started doing the math, rent, 900, car payment, 250, my food, 100, dog food, 300, cell phone, insurance. I'm going to need like three jobs, so that's what I did. But on my 21st birthday, I got a job offer that would allow me to quit my three jobs and eventually go to college. I was hired as a 911 dispatcher in the Denver metro area. Before I could jump into college classes, I heard, had to learn the ropes of 911 dispatch. It's not an easy job. And so I answered calls from people like a man who came home and found a naked man in his house after being gone from a work trip as he fired a warning shot while I was on the phone and convinced him the police were on their way. When I got four years into the job, I had enough seniority where I could tailor my schedule to my college classes. And so I applied to school excitedly and enrolled in 12 credits as a pre-med student. I was so excited about what the future were to bring. My first few semesters of college went really, really well. I was like doing this shift work, full-time work, and full-time student thing really well. I even had still had time to work out and take my old dog Maggie on hikes. I would be at work and be able to study. That was another thing that was really nice about this job. So I would be in my books, and then the phone would ring, and I'd answer. And it would be something like this. Ma'am, it's a scared, shaky, sweet old man. I need an ambulance. OK, sir. How old are you? I'm 91. What's going on? Well. I was shaving my scrotum, <laughs> and I cut myself, and I can't stop it from bleeding. <laughs> so this is how it went. I remember studying for a biochemistry final one night, and I got a call from a woman who I initially thought was suicidal. But she called me not because she needed help, but because she'd shot and killed her husband 24 hours prior while he lay asleep on the couch because he wouldn't go get her more crack cocaine. And so I dispatched police officers. They have to set up a perimeter, and I need to get her safely out the door. And I'm talking to her. She's naked and high as a kite, not making sense, more worried about what she's going to wear as she exits the house than putting down the gun. I get a full confession from her, and when police are ready for her, I try to get her to get out. 
And all I could think this whole time was just put down the fucking gun so I can get back and study. <laughs> so it went on like this. I would work a 10-hour night shift, take off my headset, and head out the door to either go to campus and go to class or go home and get a few hours of sleep to study. I did this for three years, and I don't know how many of you have worked night shift before, but that really wears on your body. On top of that, I was worried about paying rent and whether or not I was doing well in my classes, and it just kind of started to get me down. I was, my tank was being emptied. So I start my night shift. I had, I think, an organic chemistry test or final the next day. And I got a call from a fellow dispatcher who was to relieve me in the morning at 7 a.m. And they're sick. And so unless I can find a dispatcher to fill that place, I'm going to have to stay in the morning. So I buckled down. I had the police officers pick me up a few Monster Energy drinks, three, <laughs> drank them all, and stayed. By morning time, I hadn't found a dispatcher to cover the shift. So there I am in a sleepless drunkenness, hoping to go home soon so I can continue to study and then go take an exam. The phone rings. And it's a woman who's walking along this beautiful creek path, and she's come across a man who skinned his knee. In the description that she gives me, I picture her as being an observer, a bystander, that's not stopped to help the man, but that has done enough to call for help for him. So I get his approximate location and dispatch the ambulance. My, my job is done, right? Well, I go back to my sleepless drunkenness, and I don't realize how long the ambulance is taking to get there. They radio in, we're having a hard time finding the patient. Can you give us a better location? Well, it, the creek path ran right behind the police department. And we had a building full of cops and investigators that I could send out to locate the man and help. And so that's what I did. And sure enough, the police officers found the patient before the ambulance did. And this is how it went. 110 to dispatch. Go ahead, I said. Have the ambulance step it up. This is MC1, Officer Jeff Hesselroad, and he's having a stroke. In stroke emergencies, minutes are crucial. More damage was done to Officer Hesselroad's brain than was necessary. The mistakes I made that day could have cost Jeff his life. I was so angry at myself. And the only thing I could attribute it to was that I had spread myself so thin that I was making mistakes in my job that were going to kill, kill someone, and I was getting horrible grades. For the next week, I called in sick to work, and I quit showing up to classes. When I went to work, I felt like everyone around me was judging me. And when I went to school, I felt like I didn't have anything left. I had no ambition left to continue. And so I quit. I quit my job, and I quit school. 
I cashed out my retirement, and I went to work doing administrative duties, which was all that was available to me without a college degree. Something wonderful did happen. I met my husband. We got married. We started collecting Labradors, because that's what white people do. <laughs> and I settled in for a happy life doing administrative work. But I had this shame over me and this fear that I just wasn't good enough. I hadn't finished what I'd started. I told all my friends and family that I was going to be a doctor. And I would constantly get asked, have you graduated yet? So fast forward a few years, and my husband lost his job in Denver, but he found an awesome job in Boise, Idaho. And I thought, well, since I'm going to be living in such a boring place with just potatoes and a blue football field, <laughs> I might as well go back to school. So I applied to Boise State University, but this time I wasn't as excited because I thought somebody's going to have to look at my transcript and they're going to see that last semester. It's a bunch of Fs and withdraws. I was mortified. Plus, they're not going to know all the hard work that I put in and I don't get credit for it. There's no college credits for all of the 911 emergencies that I took. There's no college credit for me listening to a woman as she tries to breathe life back into her lifeless infant. But I applied, and I talked to the recruiter, and I was just embarrassed and shaky, and I remember thinking, he's going to tell me I've got like two years left. What are you doing? You're a science major, and I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And to my surprise, he was okay with that. Come to find out, I'm not actually the only person that has struggled in that way. <laughs> I found my people when I, when I came to Boise State and I started studying multidisciplinary studies. We have, there's people, my classmates have been through this. They, don't have, they didn't have the support they needed. And for one reason or another, it didn't work out for them. But they've done amazing things along the way. And you should get credit for that. I liked it so much that I somehow convinced Boise State to hire me <laughs> as an academic advisor for the exact same type of student that I was. I was shameful, I was fearful, I was regretful, and I was angry over what had happened and what I had not accomplished. And every student that I get to see now, I get to turn that story around and say, all of that counts for something. And you're worth the degree. Your experience is worth it. Thank you. That was Brooke Dolacek. Brooke graduated from Boise State University in 2019 with a Bachelor of Arts in Multidisciplinary Studies with an emphasis in Leadership and Human Relations. She's now an undergraduate academic advisor at the university in the very same program she graduated from. She works with students who, like herself, have found alternative pathways to pursuing a degree when the traditional route just didn't work or didn't work for them. 
She's an advocate for her students, and she creates unique degree plans that meet the needs of their goals as well as the demands of the workforce. Love this story from Brooke. Uh, Really loved working with her. Yeah. She's so great. Yeah, I know that you worked with her in a workshop that we did out at Boise State. And then Mason and I got to produce this story and this show out at Boise. That's right. Brooke actually gifted us with a couple of Broncos mugs, which I will treasure forever. So it was uh, so wonderful to have that story from her today. Yeah. Before we move on to our next story, I just want to let everyone know we are starting to hear stories from our team and from our listeners about medical professionals and other essential workers who are right now on the front lines of our battle with COVID. And if you or a loved one is out there right now doing this essential work that's keeping us going, whether it's medical, custodial, delivery, or anything else, we would love to hear your stories. And obviously, you're a little busy right now. You're not really in a position to sit down and craft your story along with us as we normally would with our storytellers. But if you have a moment to just send us an email about your experience, just a little snapshot of what you're going through or a moment that has stood out to you, we would love to share these stories with our listeners as they develop over these next few weeks. And so, Erin, you just want them to email us? Oh, yes. (laughs) Very important to provide (laughs) that email address. Uh, Email us at stories at storycollider.org. With COVID in the subject line, we would love to share your stories. And um, another way that you can share your stories, even if you're not one of those first-line responders or um, doing any kind of work that's essential right now, uh, every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, we are now hosting live broadcast story collider shows with three stories. Um, and then to kick them off, each week, Erin has been asking all of the audience to type into the chat window 10-minute personal stories on the theme of the day. I have enjoyed it greatly, and we hope to see you on our next Friday. Live show. Yes, they're every Friday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find them on the homepage of storycollider.org or by going to crowdcast.io slash the story collider. We would really love to see you all there and hear your stories. We have we have a lot of fun on Friday nights. It is fun. Yeah. It is fun. It's nice to take that time and, and connect and hear stories and share stories. Speaking of hearing more <laughs> stories, I would love another one, please. Well, you're in luck. <laughs> This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Our next story today is from Mark Dahl. It was recorded in July 2019 at the Ready Room in St. Louis, Missouri. The theme that night was Toil and Trouble. So four years ago, my team and I were walking into a pediatric intensive care unit in Oklahoma City. We had been sent there to pick up a kid who had a congenital heart defect that if he didn't get back here to St. Louis and get a heart transplant, 
uh, he would die. All the other senators around the country had turned him down, and uh, we were sent there to get him. Maria, Michelle, and I, two of my best friends and co-workers over the years, we made a solid team. We got into the room, and we walked up to the bed, and Maria went off to go talk to the physicians that were there uh, to get a little bit more background. And Michelle and I went to the bedside, and you know we walk up, and we, we know general age, and you know you gen- you know you, you know you a lot about the patient before you get there, and uh, but he was so cute, 18 months old, and that cherub little face, and he reminded me so much of my little Louis John at home, and just this beautiful child, and he's really friendly and cute, and he's like doing fist bumps with me. Him and I were like simpatico, man. You know, we're buddies. So and we're talking to mom, and mom Janet, she was great. She was cautiously nervous as to what was going on. Obviously, her child is dying, and she'd been living with this for a year and a half. And she knew the possible outcome. We were laughing and joking about her. We tried to add a little levity to, because usually when we show up, there's a bunch of people in flight suits, and it, it's scary and heavy and dark. So we're joking with her. This is going to be her very first airplane ride, Right? with her sick kid. So we're trying to you know, tease her about the fact that our airplane is really small and nothing to worry about. We got this. So we get James loaded onto our stretcher and we have our cardiac monitors and IVs and all those things put in place. And you know, we're super, we're cautiously optimistic because vital signs are, are decent. You know, for a kid whose heart is only beating three to 4% of the capacity of everyone else in this room. He had an incredibly sick heart. So we get him into the ambulance and we're rolling to the airport, right? Because we got to get to the airplane. And James and I are playing peekaboo with one another. This dude and I, like, for whatever reason, we like had a connection. And you know, we're we're all still monitoring his vital signs and stuff. But he's like every other 18-month-old, right? He's seeing things in the ambulance and he's looking around. He's like, "This is awesome, right?" Like, there's 40-year-olds that hop in our ambulances at the firehouse and they're like, "This is awesome." <laughs> so we get to the airport and we get loaded in the airplane, which is a whole process, you know, because he's got IVs and monitors and all this stuff. And our pilot, Dave, is a good friend of mine. He would get us up to altitude and there's really no issues at this point because Janet, the mom, was coming along with us. There wasn't enough room in the back, so she was taking up my space and thankfully it was my turn to be up front, so I didn't have to deal with all that mess back there. So Maria and Michelle are in back and they're handling the patient and you know, James is cruising right along. There's no problems. And uh, Dave and I are shooting the shit up front. And we're just talking about where we're going to get a beer next week. And so, and also, I, I smell something a little, uh, a little shitty, so to say, so to speak. That, right at that point, I was like, oh, thank you. I'm up front. I don't deal with that stuff. And Dave then turns to me and he goes, want to know why I'm a pilot and not a nurse? Well, gee, I wonder. Right about then, Maria comes up, and I get this tap on my shoulder. I turn, and it's like, oh, hey, Maria, what's up? And also, I'm like, I am not going back to the change that diaper. I got a three-year-old at home, and I'm already wiping his butt, and he's still not potty trained. I don't want to deal with that. This is my time to be up front. She's like, Mark, I really need your help back here. Now, Maria's a rock star nurse, right? She never asked for help. Michelle, again, super rock star nurse. 
They don't need my help. I'm an ambulance driver, right? Paramedic. So I was like, she's like, no, really, I need your help. I turn around and I look back there and I see Michelle laying the stretcher flat and I see her putting her hands on her chest or on James's chest and she's starting to do chest compressions. Now, I've flown all over the world to pick up patients and bring them back to the United States, and I've transported thousands of children, and I've never had one die in the airplane. In my brain, I like had a little bit of vapor lock. I'm like, what the hell am I seeing? I just was playing peekaboo with this child 40 minutes ago. We're laughing, joking, right? And now he's in cardiac arrest. I had this little pause, and half a second later, I'm out of my seat and my buckles, and I'm heading to the back, and I tell Dave, our pilot, and I'm like, declare an emergency. We need to get down. Find us the closest hospital. We're five miles above the ground. The closest hospital is 150 miles away. It's a 30-minute flight. And then, you know, he tells me this, and I'm like, well, this sucks. So we get back there, we start a resuscitation attempt, and you know, Michelle's doing CPR and Maria's handling all the medications, and I'm like contorted stretching out on this uh, cooler trying to get this kid intubated. We get him intubated and we do all those things you're supposed to do, right? You have these algorithms you follow, and we're doing it perfectly. We're hitting all of our medicines at the right time, and we're switching out compressors on this, this sweet little baby boy. And it's not changing. Now, if there's medical people here, most people know that resuscitations usually they can turn into shit shows sometimes. This was a perfectly run resuscitation with three people. In a hospital, you have 15 or 20 that will show up. Well-oiled machine. We're getting it done, right? Tuning out any emotion. We get to the ground and... And a local ambulance company picks us up and we start driving to the hospital. Now, meanwhile, I should tell you, mom is freaking out, right? In the back of the airplane, trying to run forward. Sudden CG shift in an airplane is lethal to all of us. So trying to calm her down, getting down to the airplane, promising we're doing everything we can. She's in the back of our ambulance with us and we're doing CPR and we're exhausted. By this point, we had been doing CPR for 50 minutes. It's a hell of a core workout, and I don't recommend it for anyone. I am emotionally exhausted and physically exhausted, and mom's like praying for some higher being to put power into our hands to fix her baby boy, her beautiful, beautiful baby boy. We get to the hospital, and we transfer him over to their ER bed, and they start their resuscitation, and we're helping out, and we're telling them history and all this. And finally, physicians like, listen, how long have you been doing this for? We had been doing CPR at that point up to 65 minutes. Um, and she's like, all right, does anybody else have any ideas that we haven't thought of? And all of us were like, we've tried it all. James was pronounced dead right then this beautiful baby boy who 
I wanted to hug him and hold him. You know, medicine is, is so fucked up. You can do everything right, perfect, by the textbook that they tell you, and it still won't work. And the person will still die. Or you could totally screw up. Medical mistakes happen every day. And you'll live and go home. I'm looking around the ER, and everyone is crying and sobbing, and mom is screaming, Jesus, why did you take him? I still hear her voice now, today. These, it was late at night, and these nurses and these techs were all, it was in the summertime, and they were all recent graduates. They had never participated in resuscitation, let alone seen a dead kid like this. Sobbing, crying everywhere. Everyone, except for one person. Me. I'm looking around. I'm not tearing up. I'm not crying. I'm like, what's up? At that point, I started asking inside of me, like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Has 25 years of doing this job hardened my heart to the point that I can't feel for a baby boy? What? Am I broken inside? Has my heart turned into a stone-cold lump of coal? I got home that next morning, and typically I don't tell what I see in my career to my family. My beautiful bride does not need to hear that. She doesn't need to carry that burden that I carry. She doesn't deserve it. James, though, for whatever reason, and it's probably because she looks my, he looked like my little Lou, I, I told her everything. I told her about the trip and about the flight and about the, him dying after pooping in altitude. And I told her about the, we had to rent this car and drive four hours back and it, killed like, it smelled like cat piss with McDonald's french fries all over the floor. I remember sitting at brunch with her, and I'd been up for like 26 hours at that point. And, you know, she had a tear in her eye, and I'm like, maybe I should figure something out about this, you know? So two or three weeks later, suddenly I started having nightmares every day, and I see James' face, and I feel like I'm in quicksand, and I want to help him, but I can't. And there's nothing I can do. I go back from the beginning of the trip to the end of the trip. Like, what did we fuck up? What did we miss? What did I do to cause him to die? To take him away from his mother? How come I'm lucky and I have my baby with me every day? I remember this weight is pushing on me and I'm driving to work, the firehouse, and, you know, the Blanchett Bridge is right there. We get jumpers there every day. I was like, I could just pull over and jump over and be done. I won't have this sitting on my shoulders every fucking day. One thing, though, that I had is I, I've been therapy for, I don't know, five or six years. It's, I love therapy. It's, you know, awesome, right? Even for a proud fireman, you know? Uh, it, but I never talked about it, about work. I didn't think it really, I was like, I'm good. You know, I, 
doesn't matter. My wife had mentioned something. She's like, maybe you should talk to Shannon about that. You know, just might help you. You seem a little off. So I started opening up to Shannon and letting her know what was happening and, you know, these dark thoughts. And, you know, I got diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and not necessarily from James's death, but from thousands of traumas over 25 years of seeing the absolute worst of the human condition. And I, I always have anxiety. Like, that's who I am. I'm a warrior. There's a couple warriors out there, I'm sure, but... You know, like, <laughs> on a side note, my beautiful bride, she always says, like, the best part about marrying me is that she doesn't have to do any worrying because I do all the worrying for both of us. <laughs> like, she's good, right? So, it, in med- paramedic school and in nursing school and medical school, and, you know, they, they teach you how to diagnose a heart attack or take care of a broken bone or you know, take care of a patient that got hit by a car, right? They teach you all these things, but do you know what they don't teach you at all? It's how to take care of your fucking self. They didn't tell me, they did not prepare me for what my eyes would see for the next 25 years of my career. Because one of the joys of this job is right alongside of the really best of humanity that you see, you see the absolute worst you know, when I was in that emergency room and looking at that beautiful baby boy who had just died, I had asked myself if I was broken. And I was. I was the destroyed man at that point, an absolute failure. Now, I don't think I'm broken anymore. I just might be a little cracked around the edges here and there. Thank you. That was Mark Dahl. Mark is the EMS Bureau Chief of the City of St. Charles Fire Department and a 26-year veteran of emergency medical services. He has flown worldwide to transport those in dire medical need from remote Russia to Carbondale, Illinois. He spent a total of 15 years in the high adrenaline atmosphere as a flight paramedic. For a change of pace, he has spent 22 years as a firefighter. This fall, he's planning on starting his nursing degree at Maryville University. The Story Collider is so grateful to Brooke and to Mark, not only for sharing these stories, but for doing the work and living the lives that created them. Totally. The Story Collider is also incredibly grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do all this without the help of Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Mesa Salida, Emma Young, and Eli Chen. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, which includes Jun Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Lookout Room at Boise State and the Ready Room for hosting these shows. Also thanks to the Micron School of Material Science and Engineering at Boise State. And all of you out there making the best of bad times. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.